All right, welcome to episode 44 of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we have a very special guest. His name is Daniel Kaufman. And Daniel Kaufman got his BA in History and Philosophy at the University of Michigan and his PhD in Philosophy at the CUNY Graduate Center. He's Professor of Philosophy at Missouri State University. And his main areas of interest are aesthetics, epistemology, metaphysics, and the philosophy of language. He's also one of the authors and editors of How to Live a Good Life. And today we're going to discuss Aristotelianism. Oh, and also before we do, uh, he's also the host of the Sophia program on meaningoflife.tv. Welcome, Daniel. Hey, Dan. Nice to be here. Hey, thank you so much for coming on, man. And so the first thing that we're going to ask you about is, of course, obviously Aristotle. So what did the good life look like to him? And how did he conceptualize what it meant to live a flourishing life? Um, so the... Uh the 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 relevant word that you find in ancient greek philosophy to describe what aristotle uh, is talking about in his main work on ethics called the nicomachean ethics is eudaimonia um and eudaimonia doesn't have a straight literal english translation um it is often translated as happiness um but this can be very misleading given the modern connotation of that word in english um, which is sort of like a good feeling or 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 um, uh, um, something of that sort. Um, a better translation is human flourishing or human excellence. And um, Aristotle's, like I said, main work, the Nicomachean Ethics, is devoted to trying to understand uh, what constitutes human flourishing, what it is um, to flourish as a human being. And it is worth just saying one thing about what 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 he means by that, because the the concept is a little alien in the modern frame of reference. Um, we normally think of ourselves as individuals having per various purposes, right, in life. So if someone asked you, um, you know, what was your purpose in life, the answer would be specific to you, and it would be a function of your. Um, your beliefs, your interests, um, um, the things you care about, and so on and so forth, that would then determine what your personal ends are, um, uh, and therefore what what sorts of endeavors you engage in and activities you pursue. Mm. The ancient Greeks thought, um, they didn't think that there wasn't a personal notion of purpose, but they also thought that things just had purposes generally, right? That purpose was an objective feature of the world. So when Aristotle talks about the human purpose, he doesn't just mean your individual interests and, and aims. He thinks that human beings, as human beings, have purpose, um, have distinctive functions. And therefore, when we talk about human flourishing, he's talking about excellence with respect to those. Um, now, your personal aims may come into that, right? Mm. Um, but when Aristotle asks, what is it for a human being to flourish, what he means is something analogous to if you and I were to talk about what it would mean for our gardens to flourish, mm -hmm. right? Um, there, there is a, there is what we take to be and understand as the well-being state of a garden, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and Aristotle thinks that there's, and that's not determined privately by people. That's just a function of the nature of gardens, right? Um, and Aristotle thinks the same thing about people. Um, um, and I could go into a lot more detail about why. I mean, it has, this has to do with the scientific outlook of the ancient world as opposed to the modern world. This is prior to the scientific revolution. 
if you're interested in all that, I can get into it, but it's really not necessary to understand the concept. All that you need to know is that for Aristotle, beyond our individual purposes, human beings, qua human beings, have a distinctive purpose. Yeah, for example, with, with the garden example, uh, a flower, its own flourishing is independent on how well just it is taken care of. It's how well the plants around it are taken care of as well, right? Right, and there is such a thing for it for for a plant to do well and not to do well that isn't a matter of anybody's subjective preferences, right? Mm-hmm. You know, suppose that I like my gardens wilted and dying, right? Mm-hmm. Nonetheless, there is an objective sense in which my garden is not flourishing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and right it, it, because there is what we we take to be a gen, an objective healthy state of flowers and plants, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, and that's sort of the sense in which Aristotle's conception of flourishing is objective as well. Um, there is a ge- objective state of well-being for people. Yeah. Um, aside, so if you're a person who for, for, has, has, a, has a morbid personal desire to fail, <laughs> right? Um, if you succeed in doing that, you might be fulfilling your own personal purpose but you're failing to fulfill the human purpose as far as Aristotle is concerned. That's so interesting. And so the human purpose, what, what, which virtues is it comprised of? So the way, the, the way that Aristotle determines what constitutes the human purpose is by looking at what he takes to be the distinctive human characteristics, right? Um, so look, we do share some things with our gardens. That is, we're both alive, right? Hmm. But while it's sufficient for a garden to flourish merely to live, um, it's not sufficient for a human being flourish to flourish merely to live because human beings have capacities beyond the ability to live. Now, Aristotle believes that ultimately what's distinctive about human beings is our capacity for both what I'm going to call deliberative reason mm-hmm. and what I'll call um, um, uh, contemplative we- uh, reason. But don't don't take the word contemplative in the modern sense of sort of um, navel gazing. Mm-hmm. By contemplative reason, he means the kind of reason that we employ in the pursuit of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And by deliberative reason, he means the kind of reason that we pursue uh, for the purpose of engaging in action. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's like the distinction is more sort of seemingly um, theoretical from practical. Exactly. Oh. If you want to call it theoretical and practical reason, those are perfectly apt descriptors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so Aristotle thinks that's what's distinctive about us. Mm-hmm. What's distinctive about us that no, no other creature or living thing shares are those two capacities. And because of that, it's all the activities that flow from those capacities that constitute human flourishing, mm-hmm. right? And think about what those activities are. The pursuit of knowledge, mm-hmm. right, and understanding – which includes all the sciences, includes philosophy, and all manner of scholarship. It includes um, ethical life, right? Deliberative reason is the chief is the chief faculty involved in ethical life, um, or at least one of the chief uh, faculties involved in ethical life. Political life, mm-hmm. and arts and craftsmanship, mm-hmm. right? All of these activities require and employ either deliberative or contemplative or some combination of the two reason. Mm-hmm. And thus, it's in exercising those and in ex- excelling in the activities that flow from them right. that constitute human flourishing for Aristotle. But if you know, if you've paid notice, that, that means you can flourish in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. There's not just one path 
you know, and, and one of the one of the things, you know, now to get argumentative, um, one of the reasons why I prefer, I'm assuming you read the whole book. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I prefer the Aristotelian uh, version of eudaimonia to the Stoic one that Massimo prefers mm-hmm. is that for the Stoic, there's only one fo- one form of flourishing, and that's the that's virtue. Right. Yep. Uh, for Aristotle, flourishing is multifaceted, and that's because the distinctive human capacities are multifaceted. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, in my view, Aristotle gives us a much more, um, a much richer, right. more robust, and in my view, more realistic right. picture of human flourishing than those that try to narrow flourishing down to a single yeah. end, to a single form of life. And Dan, so I actually wanted to ask you about that. So, from my, sure. from my kind of. Um understanding of Stoic philosophy is that, and from my reading of Massimo's chapter in the book, as well as kind of other things he's written. Um, so the way I kind of saw it was that what he was saying is that, that that's the good enough life. So if you're living virtuously, that's a good way for you to feel, you know, kind of a solid sense of self-esteem or self-worth. So, but he was also saying that it's obviously quite possible to feel better, right? In the sense of like having material wealth, in the sense of having status, prestige, yeah. etc. So my yeah. kind of understanding was that it wasn't really so much all or nothing, that he wasn't saying that this is only good and the rest of it is was kind of like bad or shit or whatever yeah I, the way yeah. i kind of understood stoic philosophy is that that this is just good enough and that things can get better so yeah if we were to kind of conceptualize success one could i guess in terms of stoic philosophy can say i feel good enough and knowing that i tried my best but i can certainly feel better in knowing that i was actually practically and physically successful right yeah. but but let's 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 disambiguate a few things so first of all let's distinguish the way you feel about your life from whether your life actually is one of flourishing or not, because that's exactly the distinction I was trying to evoke. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I would not want to deny that stoicism may be a very effective uh, method of consolation. Right. Um, um, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a theory of flourishing, right. An account of flourishing. Um, and I've actually said this to Massimo before I've said this to him both in print and, and, and orally. And that is that, I actually w- would accept something like stoicism as an account of human consolation um, that is uh, of, 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 of a discipline by which we can ensure or at least better ensure that we're going to be satisfied with our lives, right? right? But that's a distinct question from whether our lives actually were well-led, right? Mm-hmm. That's that difference between the garden you want and what constitutes a healthy or flourishing garden, right? Again, if I want a dead, dying, wretched, miserable um, garden, there is still nonetheless a sense in which my garden is a failure, right? In which it hasn't it hasn't flourished because right. there's, a, there's what we take to be a well-being state for plants that's distinctive from my personal desires. Right. And the same is true for life. But let me, let me, but let me now concede something, and that is that um, look, it may be, and Massimo and I have debated this. If you're interested in this, we have lengthy um, dialogues on my on the Blogging Head show that uh, the Meaning of Life show that I host, um, where we sort of debated this in quite close detail, mm-hmm. as well as we did dueling essays in the magazine that I published called The Electric Agora, mm-hmm. um, which we can, which you can, if you have links in this, you can link to. Absolutely. Um, um, it may be that the difference between the Stoic and the Aristotelian is just where they where they carve the way they carve things up rather than the entire picture. So, you're you're quite right to say that um, for the Stoic, um, the life of virtue is sufficient to have had a life worth living, right? But 
we would prefer a life full of what he calls preferred indifference. So these are things that are desirable, um, but which don't in any way impact our virtue and thus whether or not our life was worth living, right? Um, the, in a sense, then, so long and, – and, and if you look at what the Stoic says about the life of virtue – it's all about the effort and the intent that one that one puts into it, right? Um, in my view, one consequence of this, however, um, and I think it's and I think it's a counterintuitive one, and it's one that it's one of the reasons that I that I didn't go in the direction Massimo went. In a sense, if you really try, you can't fail on the Stoic view, right? And I just don't find it plausible to suggest that. A human life can't be a failure regardless of one's best, best effort. In other words, I think – I don't accept that what he calls preferred indifference are indifference. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think that due to circumstances beyond your control, due to situations, due to just a bad hand dealt at birth, right. due to all sorts of things – one can fail to flourish like the garden can fail to to flourish despite one's best efforts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That is, I do think that there is an element of externality. And now Massimo doesn't necessarily degree, disagree. And what he wants to say is that, look, what the Stoic is interested in is not really in flourishing per se, but in living a life worth living. Um. Whereas the Aristotelian says, yeah, but the life worth living is the life of flourishing. Right. And that's where they sort of come apart. Right. Um, and so I want to say that the life worth living is the life of flourishing and that one can fail at it. Yeah. Right. Even if one did nothing wrong. And part of the reason I like that view is because it strikes me as true to actual life. Mm-hmm. And Dan, what, mean, are, what is preferred indifference? So for Massimo, preferred indifference are things like wealth, mm-hmm. education, even political liberty, like the whole point of Stoicism, I mean, look, one of the greatest Stoic uh, authors, Epictetus, was a slave, right? Mm-hmm. Right. The whole point of Stoicism is that you can, you can, you can have eudaimonia even if you are enslaved, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you can have eudaimonia even if you're sitting in Auschwitz, right? Mm-hmm. And to my view, while I don't deny that one can be consoled in such contexts, I don't think that one can flourish in such contexts, and I do think, I mean, not necessarily, such contexts may make it impossible for one to flourish, Um, and I want that to be a possibility. I think that a a philosophy of life in which there's no possibility of failure Mm -hmm. is, in my view, deeply unrealistic, and to my view, borders on a form of Mm self-deception. I... Um, now, for Massimo, and I've said this, Dan, this is not like a secret. I mean, right, he knows right. I think this. Yeah. For Massimo, I don't know exactly whether it's that he disagrees with that or that he carves things up differently where he agrees with it to the extent he says that, look, yes, that's true. You can fail to flourish despite your best efforts. Right. But what matters isn't flourishing. What matters is being virtuous, right? Oh, mm. I mean, God, sorry. So yeah. two things. One so it seems to me that flourishing can be determined um, not subjectively, but objectively. For right? Aristotle, yes. Right. Yeah. And then I'm wondering at the same time, wouldn't it be interesting to kind of integrate both philosophies? That's what I was thinking too. Uh, or should it be that it's one or the other? Yeah, look, I think you can be an Aristotelian mm-hmm. and adopt basically a Stoic 
view of consolation. That is sort of, and what I'm saying by consolation means the ability to feel satisfied with oneself and one's life, right? right. Um, but that's notice that's a subjective state, right? Yeah. I'm not saying it's not important, right, right. Mm-hmm. but it's a distinct question from again whether your garden grew well or yeah. not. Right? That makes sense. Whether you're satisfied with it, if you believe that there's such a thing objectively as gardens growing well, right, 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 right. whether you're satisfied with the garden is a separate issue. Yeah. It may be related. Mm-hmm. Now, in the case of Aristotle, they're they're integrated, right? One is only rightly satisfied if one has objectively flourished. Right. Now, to my mind, to be satisfied in the face of having failed to flourish mm-hmm. might be a form of self-deception or it might be a form of healthy, resigned consolation, right? right. Well, at least I did my best. Right? Yeah, right. But what I don't want to accept is that is the idea that it doesn't matter whether you flourished or not. Right. right, and I'm not sure right. that Stoicism was saying that. Just I'm not right. sure either. Right. It, it, the problem with me is that I find Stoicism a little bit slippery. I hear you. Um, yeah. So, I mean, my, my thinking of it is, is this, like, I wonder if we could sort of um, have a gradation or sort of have levels of success where we can say, I can feel pride in myself for the attempt and I can feel pride in myself for doing as much as I could. But then I can also feel even more pride if, let's say, I were to succeed. Whereas we're not particularly devaluing any form of success. We're just saying that one is just better than the other. Well, it's like we have the bigger picture of obviously, you know, kind of attempt and of actual success where we can say that's phenomenal. That's the goal. Yeah. But then we can say it's not so black and white where it's either we fail and we feel like shit or we succeed and we feel great well but, but i want there's an in-between though there and i want to just be careful with because i mean the way you're putting this now sort of clarifies it to me what, what i really do think i have a substantial disagreement with massimo and with the stoic and that is look um massimo gives uses a lot of examples in his book how to be a stoic which came out before this one and partly served as the inspiration to do this one um um Gives the example of shooting at a shooting at archery, right? Right. And he says, you know, um, hitting the target is a preferred indifferent. Right. And whether you hit the target is in part due to things you don't control, the wind, the the quality of the bow you're given, all sorts of stuff like that, right? Luck. Mm -hmm. Um, What matters is that you did your best, right? My problem with this is that one engages in archery not to try to hit targets, but to hit targets. And to, and to, to downplay the idea that the failure to hit the target is a failure strikes me as either it's, again, counterintuitive or it's a form of self-deception. Yeah. But more than that, to be entirely satisfied with one's effort upon failing to do what the effort was for also strikes me as a bit... Right, as a bit as a bit self-deceiving, right? The, you know, the reason I engaged in the activity was to hit targets. I didn't engage in the activity to try to hit targets. So I should be unsatisfied mm-hmm. at failing to hit the target. Now that doesn't mean I have to hate myself, mm-hmm. right? Right, right, right. <laughs> but to suggest that, um, let's now let's now generalize. Okay, now let's now go to eudaimonia. Right. The equivalent to trying to hit the target is all of your life's endeavors, right? I'm trying to have relations, good relationships. I'm having to trying to raise a daughter properly. I'm trying to succeed in my profession. I'm trying to have a positive impact on public discourse. All these sorts of things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm saying is that 
whether my life were, was worth living yeah. does depend in part on whether I succeed in those things at all. Yes. It's very odd to say my life was worth living despite the fact that I failed at all of the things I tried to do because I was a good guy, right? Mm -hmm. Now, in my view, that's a kind of self-deception, mm -hmm. right? Now, I do, however, think that the stoic attitude is a good discipline. And by discipline, I mean in the sense of a psychological discipline, right? Mm -hmm. for, cons for consolation in the face of failure, right? In other words, it, 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 it's the sort of thing that a therapist would tell you, <laughs> okay? It's just true. Yeah. You know, um, 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 and listen, I'm at a point in my life now in middle age where I'm starting to see which of my endeavors are going to succeed and which are going to not, probably not, right? right? I'm at a point, you know, I'm at the point now where I'm starting to see what kind of kid my daughter's going to turn out to be and so on and so forth, what kind of grown-up my daughter's going to turn out to be, right? And I've talked to my therapist about the fears I have about the certain things that I've put so much into not working out and all that sort of thing. Right. Um, and there is a healthy kind of resignation, right? Mm -hmm. I just find that the Stoics notion of resignation almost strikes me as a kind of of, of joyful resignation, right? Um, it's just sort of like, oh, uh, I mean, Massimo is actually referred to his own daughter as a preferred indifferent. Now, I find that just impossible to conceive, right? Yeah. Um, um, I understand if my daughter dies, right, right. God forbid, mm -hmm. or my daughter turns out to be an arch criminal, right? Mm -hmm. I do understand that at some point, in order to put my life back together, I have to have a healthy re resignation, right? right? I have to, to some way, be able to go on. But to suggest that, if that happens, I should be entirely satisfied that my life was worth living, despite the fact that I failed at the main task, right? right. Strikes me as just delusional, right? I mean, that, that's just, that's just, just, just not something I can accept. And right. so I, I guess I do want to push it back against the notion, not that one should be capable of a certain kind of healthy resignation in the eye of failure, right. in, the, in the face of failure, what I want to push back against is the idea that one should be rightly satisfied when one has failed at the majority of one's primary ends, right? And so, Dan, I was just one yeah, point. Sorry. sorry, I went on too long about that. I was trying to be as clear as I could. No, no, so yeah. definitely valid points. I mean, I think that everything you say makes a lot of sense, but my, and just, I don't want to say but, because that kind of devalues what you said, and I definitely think that all of these are really important. My thinking is that I wonder if, and obviously from your perspective, do you think that it could be that it's an issue with sort of um, our kind of, as human beings, our innate difficulty with tolerating kind of um, ambiguity or sort of paradox? Because my, from my perspective, what's still I think of it as we're just trying to see it in terms of the sort of um, not necessarily the conflict but the dichotomy that exists internally and so what I mean by that is that like to give you an example um, let's say just the other day I was there was somebody who I asked out and I was rejected by this person um, so I really liked this girl and I asked her out and I was like man I kind of put in so much effort into it and so for, that was an obvious failure unquestionably right. and so there was a part of me that was obviously disappointed and dissatisfied and even hurt by it but then on the other hand there was also a part of me that was proud of my myself or even putting myself out there and so those two feelings which obviously seem and are paradoxical not contradictory but they existed in me together that I was obviously dissatisfied and 
if you were to ask me like what would I have done differently the next time I probably would have said I wouldn't have asked her out maybe maybe so but my thinking is that like I think the two can coexist together where you can on the one hand feel proud of yourself but then on the other hand be disappointed with the outcome what do you think I, but I, look I agree with all of that but again what you're talking about is how I feel about it right what I'm asking is but did you actually flourish? In other words, no, no. Look, no. So the answer would if, be no, right? If you reject the idea of objective flourishing, then there's no dispute, mm -hmm. right? Um, um, my dispute is so, and and I do think. I mean, look, let's 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 tweak your example a little bit because I'm not sure that the example you gave the stakes are big enough, right? So let me change the example. Mm -hmm. You asked the girl out um, after years of courtship. You got married. Mm -hmm. um, you had a 25-year marriage and raised three children. Right. And the end result of it was a terrible, bitter, bitter divorce, children with various serious psychological problems, um, and so on and so forth. Um, um, uh, would you be willing to say, well, I did my best, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I'm nonetheless satisfied with my life because the main thing, despite the fact that the main thing I set myself to and think the most important thing I have, well, I've ever done, which is raise children, I failed at. Nonetheless, it was my best effort. Right. And so I'm satisfied. I find that a very odd attitude. And I guess a part of me doesn't even really believe anybody really believes it. I think that they just, it's the sort of thing you tell yourself. Yeah. Um, um, you know, I don't want to minimize Massimo's <laughs> deprivations, whatever they may have been. And right now he's going through a terrible nightmare because he's got a lot of family in Italy. Yeah. Um, um, I can't even imagine the terror the man is suffering right now. Um, but you know, you know, my mother, my mother spent her middle school years in a, in a German concentration camp. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, um, uh, most of her family was, 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 was gassed. Um, um, that legacy stalked our family for generations. It led to mental illness. It led to suicides. It led to my mother's lifelong depression. I don't know that my mother ever has really, really um, been happy. Um, um, now, if that doesn't constitute some sort of very profound, deep, objective failure, then I don't know how to even make sense of what's tragic about it, right? Mm -hmm. um, 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 what's tragic is that we that that, that that the capacity to flourish was ripped away from an entire group of people. Right. And to simply say, oh, no, 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 their lives were worth living yeah. in Auschwitz, right, because they were good people, yeah. I think is facile. Honestly, now I understand that it's meant in a non-facile way, right. and I don't deny that Massimo could describe it in ways that sound very rich, enriching, and deep and meaningful. But again, I guess I guess maybe more than Massimo, I am very, very, very aware and concerned about self-deception. Yeah. Um, I don't want to live with illusions, and I don't want to be comforted by illusions. Right. Well, out of curiosity, yeah. um, is in that case, is human flourishing something that is determined in the moment? In and why I put it that way is because technically, if you if you used um, these forms of like tactical or consolation as a tactic, right? Um, it could be that in resigning to whatever situation that you're in, or whatever feelings that you feel, or whatever. Uh, however events have gone uh, maybe that can lead you to then take another sort of action that could then sort of lead to flourishing 
I agree. That's why I said I think stoicism, if you asked me my opinion of it, I would say I think its chief value is as a discipline for consolation and productive resignation, right? Um, um, which is what how I would the, the terms I would use to, to characterize what you just said, right? Mm-hmm. In other words, the stoic attitude is 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 deeply wise in the confrontation of failure, right? And catastrophe. That's why I think it's a philo- it's not an accident. I wrote this in the dueling essays I did with Masa, but it's not an accident. If you look at the period from which Stoicism emerges, right. it's not the the high periods of classical civilizations, it's the declining periods of classical civilization, right? Um, it's not an accident that it's so influential on Christianity and that there's so much crossover between Stoicism and Christianity, right? I mean, I mean, Christianity takes it even further. They're convinced that the world is going to end imminently, right? And so the whole thing is about about a certain kind of um, 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 a productive, deep, Consolation and resignation um, in the hope, added with the hope of a, of, an, of an afterlife. Um, but um, we don't live in that kind of civilization, and so I just don't think I, it's in, in our civilization, I think it makes more sense as a discipline for productive consolation and for consolation and productive resignation. I don't think it really makes sense as a philosophy of. Of, of eudaimonia mm-hmm. um, um, I, I have other problems with it um, with stoicism I don't know why this is turning into an argument about stoicism but I guess it's not <laughs> it's not a bad foil right. it's it's a nice it's not bad it's it's not a bad way to define Aristotelianism to contrast it with its closest cousin right. because clearly they are the two closest of the eudaimonist um, the eudaimonist philosophies I mean you also have stoicism relationship to cynicism that's it's sort of its brother on the other side right mm-hmm. um, um, and stoicism some people would say is sort of between cynicism and Aristotelianism mm-hmm. um, um, but um, the other problem I have with stoicism I think is it, it, it I think it over it overemphasizes the ethical mm-hmm. and how would, uh, how, how would Aristotle Massimo is much more interested in the ethical than I am um mm-hmm. Well, um, how was how it then, according to Aristotle? What was how did he define ethics? Because I remember reading that from kind of your and his perspective that he wasn't so much about or so obsessed with rule breaking. I mean, rule breaking, rule making, as he was about sort of conceptualizing it in the kind of um, in the framework of sort of a guide for a person's life rather than particular sets of rules to live by. Yeah. Well, look, neither the Stoics nor the Aristotelians are going to have rules in the modern sense of a moral rule that you would get like out of Kant or out of, out of, out of utilitarianism. Right. Um, and that's because the conception of virtue that the ancient Greeks are working with, first of all, is applied directly only to character and only indirectly to conduct. And secondly, because it assumes correctly in my view that um, um, the question of virtue with respect to conduct is going to be highly contextually sensitive, right? And we can talk about that if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in my view, the difference between Aristotle and the Stoic isn't so much their conception of virtue, but rather the relative place of virtue in the overall picture of human flourishing. For Aristotle, a moral, moral, a moral goodness is only one dimension of human flourishing, um, and and not and not and not necessarily the over an overriding one, right? right. Whereas for as a matter of fact, it's argue, one could argue that Aristotle thought the highest form of flourishing involved no ethical virtue at all, right? Um, and that's the life of contemplation, which we can talk about if you want. Mm-hmm. 
Massimo disagrees with me on this, but I think I have the I, I have I have the bulk of Aristotle's scholars on my side on this. Um, um, and um, so, for one thing, I, I think that you know the, you know the, the relative place of, of morality is different, right? So, so for Aristotle, moral goodness is one element of human flourishing. For the Stoics, moral goodness is the whole of a life worth living. And all the rest of the stuff are preferred indifference, mm-hmm. right? So um, why did Aristotle consider contemplation like his highest value? Because he thought it was the life of the gods. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is, this is you know, get, getting into a bit of technicality. In Aristotle, in the Nicomachean Ethics, you basically have two books. Books one through nine is all about the life of moral virtue. Mm-hmm. Book ten is about the life of contemplation. And um, the life of contemplation is a life devoted entirely to scholarship. It's a life in which we only, in which we exercise um, the uh, what, what, I don't the theoretical sort of reason rather than the practical. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and if you think about it, in a certain way, all that all that all that this type of of, of thinking requires is a person. And the truth, right? It's it's a person trying to discover, to wrestle with the truth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that does not involve any activity, per se, mm-hmm. and thus is not subject to deliberative reason, and thus is not cannot be a form of moral flourishing, moral goodness by definition, right? Because mm-hmm. for Aristotle, moral goodness always involves activity and deliberating over our activity. Right. It's moral 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 life is lived in the polis. Um, it's lived in the social framework. It's not a private internal value, and that's why there's the Stoicism. Stoics are were so amenable to Christianity, because Christianity internalizes virtue and goodness. Has to because the world has fallen. Right. right? Mm-hmm. No goodness can happen in the world. Right. Uh-huh. Um, um, so the, Sto- the, the the you know they they take the Stoic sort of pessimism and turn it into a full blown. Um, um, the world is shit and nothing good can happen in it. And so, you know, we now retreat to the interior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, for Aristotle, ethical life has always lived in the polis. There is no such thing as private internal morality, right? Mm-hmm. Character is displayed in one's dispositions to act, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so the life of contemplation does not involve activity in the polis. And so by definition, it's not a moral life, mm-hmm. right? And he even says in book 10 that it's the life of the gods because gods are pure thought. They're not embodied, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And he even says at a certain point it would be absurd to ascribe virtues to gods, right? Mm -hmm. To to, to ascribe the virtue of thrift to a god would mean that a god, like, spends money, Mm -hmm. right? Which is ridiculous, right? Mm -hmm. And so by definition, he says, the contemplative life is a human being living like a god, Mm -hmm thinking rather than doing and therefore it's not a moral life but a, but but even a higher form of life it's a life that some human beings are capable of living but it's not a human life it's a life of a god right mm-hmm. um now that's just the life of contemplation that has a sort of a hard demarcation from the life of virtue for aristotle mm-hmm. But I would also go further and this may be more of a neo-aristotelianism rather than True, true to the historical Aristotle, but this is the view I presented in the book is a neo-Aristotelianism. It's my digestion right. of 
Aristotle in 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 in, in the modern framework. Um, I would include um, all of the other forms of deliberative but non-social political activities as also part of flourishing and as non-ethical. So I'm talking about art, artistic, mm-hmm. creative in other ways, right? So artists, craftsmen, sportsmen, so on and so forth. These are all distinctive ways of flourishing, human human ways of flourishing that are also not ethical. Right. And in my view, a fully flourishing life has to involve a mixture, uh-huh. right? Um, um, I've written a lot about and talked a lot about what I take to be an, an overabundance of morality, uh-huh. <laughs> by which I mean an overfocus on morality. Uh-huh. Um, here I'm very much um, uh, in support of and supported by a very famous essay by Susan Wolf. Yeah, Moral um, Saints. Um, yeah. Right, called Moral Saints. Um, and um, in my view, what the Stoic essentially says is that everyone should aspire to be a moral saint. And in my view, I can't think of anything worse than living in a society full of moral saints. If you want, um, I could uh, read the quote from her, actually. Yeah. So she says, uh, the ideal of a life of moral sainthood disturbs not simply because it is an ideal of a life in which morality unduly dominates. The normal person's direct and specific desires for objects, activities, and events that conflict with the attainment of moral perfection are not simply sacrificed, but removed, suppressed, or subsumed. The way in which morality is apt to dominate is particularly disturbing, for it seems to require either the lack or the denial of the existence of an identifiable personal self. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, to my mind, the, the way I look at this and, and, and is that... Is that um, To focus only on moral virtue and to say a lo- that the life worth living is the life of moral virtue, which is what the Stoics say, mm-hmm. to my mind, um, means that we should then all aspire to be moral saints, right? Um, because everything else is a preferred indifferent, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that these other things are preferred indifference. Uh, a life in which everybody was only moral and in which there was there were no there was no great cuisine no great arts no great athletics no great video games yep. no great anything is a is a life i wouldn't want to i wouldn't want to live for 5 minutes right i mean i mean to my mind morality is always in the ser- is always in the service of the good life it doesn't constitute the good life mm-hmm. to me ethics is ultimately an instrumental good right mm-hmm. For, Aris, for, for Massimo and for the Stokes, it's, it's an intrinsic good, right? It, it's, it's the thing. To me, morality is sort of the, the deeper, more profound version of manners, right? I mean, it's, 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 it has to do with how you behave. Right. And the point of it is so that we can all get to the things that we really want to do, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, um, and uh, I, I find that not only do I think that just in terms of, of, of how I think about my own life, it, it also... And also, I think that in terms of the kinds of people I like to be around, I really don't like people who are morally obsessive, right? I mean, I, I don't, you know, it's very hard for me. I have a few relationships that are that, that are not like this, but, you know, I can think of one ethical vegan I have really good friendship with, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's precisely the one who is able to bracket it right. and has something else to offer. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> so that when I'm hanging out with her, it's my department head. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, um, but I find. Um, moral obsessives to be very unappealing people to be around. Yeah, because right? a lot of times they're self-righteous. And sometimes... Or just not fun. Yeah. They've got nothing else going, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, it's okay, true. great, you're a great person now. Can we do something? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And then you find out, well, you can't do anything because all of those things are, are fall under the various moral prohibitions that this person's concerned with. You know, one of the ways I put this in the, in the, in the chapter is... Um, I don't believe that moral considerations are always overriding. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think Aristotle is one way of articulating that, right? Of expressing that idea in this idea that a flourishing life is one of mixed excellences. Mm-hmm. Yes, some moral excellences, certainly, but other kinds of excellences too. Aristotle is constantly emphasizing the importance of balance. Right. He makes a direct relationship between sort of sort of one's well-being as a person right. and one's physical well-being right too much exercise bad for you too little exercise good for you right the right amount of exercise is what i'm sorry too little yeah, exercise right. bad for you too much exercise bad for you right. the moderate amount good for you mm. this generalizes in terms of physical well-being but i would also argue that it generalizes to and this is not a word right. characterological well-being right mm-hmm. um um a person shouldn't be a one-note charlie mm-hmm. <laughs> And I find Stoicism a bit of a one-note Charlie, right? Yeah. And what's so difficult with morality is, especially if we're taking into consideration or just taking on Aristotle's conception of it, is that it's pretty contextual. So it's very hard for us to decide what that golden mean is in every single situation. That's right. And you can't. And, and there's no – that's the other thing is that Aristotle recognizes that philosophy by what's let's mean you know, certain kinds of rational inquiry mm-hmm. – can only get you so close to the target after which it all comes down to judgment and ultimately even perception. Right. How so? What, what does that mean? So, um, I'm trying to think how to say this in a way that's clear um, and doesn't require technical expertise. Um, um, reason is an instrument that operates within the general, right? Because reason always generalizes, and reason depends upon generalizable rules, right? Mm-hmm. I would say that much of, most of human life operates at the level of the particular, not the general. Mm-hmm. Okay. And with regard to the particular, reason can tell us very little, right? So now let me illustrate this with respect to Aristotle, all right? Reason can tell me that excess and deficiency are bad and that moderation is good, right? Reason can tell me that. And he does say that. (laughs) But what reason can't tell me is what on a specific particular instance constitutes moderation, excess, and deficiency. Reason can't tell me that. That's going to depend on the circumstances. The very same thing may be excessive in one set of circumstances, deficient in another, and moderate in a third. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, how then do you figure out, beyond that level of generality, moderate, not excessive, or deficient, how do you get down to, okay, today, Tuesday, in the room here with these people right now, what to do requires a kind of perception, 
right? To see it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that which cannot be said can only be shown, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's, that's a line from Wittgenstein, um, um, who I'm also a huge fan of. Um, if you ever want to do a podcast on Wittgenstein, I can talk about him for hours. Very cool. um, 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 that which cannot be said, i.e. Gen- reasoned about and thus spoken of in a general way, can only be shown, pointed at, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he gives an analogy of a baker, right? Mm-hmm. Right? I can tell you, I can give you the instruction that says um, the bread should not be baked too much or too little, but the right amount. But I can only see if it's baked the right amount. I can't deduce whether it's baked the right amount, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, for Aristotle, philosophy can only offer a relatively limited amount of guidance in the pursuit of a life. Because most of life operates at the level of the particular. This is another objection I have to the Stoics. <laughs> They, in my view, wildly overestimate how much good a philosophy can do you in your in, in the particulars of your life. And that's why if you, if you read the chapter, which I know you did, you'll see that I said, you know, I worry that I may have disappointed my readers because my, dis- my readers are expecting rules and practices and here, do this five times a day and wake up in the morning and stare off and think about this. And, that. and you know what? That might be great on Tuesday. might be the worst thing you could ever do on Thursday, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, and, and so I know now I'm starting to sound like a Jew. <laughs> no, this is great. This is, great. This is like clip material. <laughs> right? but you know what I'm saying? In other words, I, 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 what I like about – listen, my original idea for the book was to write an actually a skeptical chapter. I didn't even want to do Aristotle. Uh-huh. I told Aristotle – I want to write an anti-philosophy chapter. I want to say I'm against oh, wow. philosophies of life, mm-hmm. right? Um, for the reasons that we're talking about right now, mm-hmm. right? Um, and Massimo was like, "Yeah, but that's not really going to work." You know, he didn't mind it intellectually, but in this concept of a popular book, right. in an academic book, maybe in a popular book. So what he asked me to do instead was, um, and Massimo really was the ringleader of this. He deserves the credit for the book, um, even existing. Um, it wouldn't have happened had his, had his, how to be a stoic not been a huge success, which it was. Yeah. Um, and if you haven't talked to him about that book, you should, um, yeah. he'll be on at the end of um, next. It's one. really good. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you, if you want to show him this before he, uh, <laughs> I'm sure he'll before, watch it. <laughs> um, 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 <laughs> But so instead of writing an anti-philosophy of life chapter, which is what I really wanted to do and would have also suited my temperament because you can see the sort of person I am, mm-hmm. um, um, I wanted to be the asshole in the book, right? Yeah. Um, but um, instead he says, why don't you try to figure out what philosophy best approximates your attitude, mm-hmm. right? And it's always been Aristotelian. I didn't have to figure it out. I've always told people if they'd ask me, well, which philosophy you know most best suits you? And it's Aristotle, no question about it. Mm-hmm. But part of the reason it suits me is that it's very minimalistic. Right. Aristotle, at the beginning of the Nicomachean Ethics, before he even starts, basically tells you, don't expect too much out of this. That's mm-hmm. really cool. It's not going to tell you how to live. Right. At best, it's going to give you a sketch of what a good life looks like. Mm-hmm. Right? Really a sketch, like a stick drawing. Right. Right. <laughs> But beyond that, the only way is to do. Yep. That's why he F, F is, it's all about good habits, right? It's all about develop, and that only those are only acquired through doing. Mm-hmm. They're not acquired by radiosinating prior to doing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say Aristotle is a behaviorist, but there are even behaviorist elements in Aristotle. Right. I was actually thinking that he seems to have been one of the early, like literally, psychotherapists. Uh, and I, yeah. I, 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 I. I 
I'm a fan of behaviorism. I mean, it's mm-hmm. as a complete theory. Of course, it's false. Right. I don't deny that there's a mind or, or that there are <laughs> mental states. Well, that's what's cognitive but, behavioral now. But in a lot of ways, it's correct. Um, I think we oh wildly overemphasize either the the prominence or the efficacy of ratiocination, and especially prior to action. I just don't think it works like that. And um, Aristotle really provides a way to understand why, right? Um, reason only can get you so so much down the ladder from generality to particularity, after which you're in the realm of particularity and reason is almost entirely useless, right? Um, it's all about about sensitivities and being able to see things and being able to hear a certain way and just having a sort of sort of uh, uh, being habituated to subtleties and differences in certain circumstances and and, and notice that's also something that can only come with age. Right. Uh, Aristotle says there can be no young wise people, right? Oh. And he's right. Yeah. Um, 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 you can have a, a, a genius young person. Right. But you can't have a wise young person, right? I mean, that just why? Because it's not a matter of reasoning; it's a matter of experience. Interesting. So what uh, you're saying is that that you could pretty much understand the theory, even in its sort of in its complex depth, but you don't really know how to apply it until you get the rap, yeah, the necessary. Isn't experience. that true? Right. Mm-hmm. Isn't that true? Yeah. I mean, listen. I mean, you know, you could read all the instructions and know exactly what you have to do to ride a bicycle, and you still couldn't ride it, right? Yeah. Um. 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 And I said, what I would say, living is a lot more like riding a bicycle mm-hmm. um and the relative value of philosophy to that kind of activity is relatively small mm-hmm. um you know there's a the, the philosopher 20 philosopher i'm a big fan of 20th century um name was gilbert ryle mm-hmm. um has a famous distinction he makes between knowing how and knowing that mm-hmm. where knowing that is sort of the possession of information and knowing how is the possession of a competency right mm-hmm. And most people think that in order to know how, you first have to know that. Mm-hmm. And what he points out is that no, actually, most of the time, you have to, knowing how has nothing to do with knowing that. It's just a matter of practice, right? Of mm-hmm. doing something over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, indeed, knowing that is itself a kind of practice that you can do well or poorly, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so he actually argues that knowing how is prior to knowing that. Um, um, but I would say that living is 80% knowing how and only 20% knowing that. Mm-hmm. And so the relative usefulness of a philosophy is relatively meager. Uh, and that's why I often come off as very anti-philosophical when we talk about these issues because I just don't think philosophy has that much to tell us mm-hmm. um, about how to lead our lives in a way that's, um, that, that Aristotle would conceive of as, uh, and I would conceive of as uh, worthy of, uh, of having made the effort. And I love that because like as an existential therapist, I go through this with clients all the time where they kind of come to me wanting a precise blueprint of the exact decisions they're supposed they to make. They want you to tell them what to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. But what we, I'm not you. It's right. not, not going to translate, right? And, and that's, yeah. And so what I pretty much help them or try to help them do is help them kind of establish that there's a, or establish the belief that there's a groundlessness, that there is no blueprint. And the most that I could do is give them a kind of framework in terms of helping them figure out what their values are. Right. But at the end of the day, we're going to have to come up with it together, but they're going to be the ultimate deciders of what values yeah. that they have and how do they kind yeah. of manifest them yeah yeah what's yeah. fascinating is uh, your argument against philosophy is also uh it's kind of like an argument against self-help too yes actually yes right uh, all those self-help books that kind yeah of- I, I really i dislike you know one of the things that i was worried about here and that i was very made very clear from early on is that i want no part of the self-help industry fortunately massimo feels the same way 
I don't believe that even his book, How to Be a Stoic, or even the manual for Stoics that he published is rightfully uh, uh, put in that genre. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 but I was worried that we, because we were going with a trade press and not an academic press, not writing an academic book, that we would wind up in self-help sections and bookstores and stuff mm-hmm. next to you know Deepak Chopra and, and <laughs> Tony Robbins and other stu- sort of cringy stuff like that. <laughs> and, um, um, and I just um, I want nothing to do with it. Um, um, precisely because I think it, they, they fundamentally misunderstand what human life is like. I mean, human life is not, is not root, routinizable in that way, right? I mean, it just isn't. Um, what, every, the 10 things that may work for you may be the worst possible things for me to do um, just because of the differences in our temperaments and circumstances. Mm-hmm. What's generally true of all of us don't do too much, don't do too little, do the right amount is is true, but is not very useful advice, right? I mean, if you think about it, how much does that actually help you mm-hmm. tomorrow when you're standing in the store and you're trying to figure out how you should act when this ass in front of you has 10,000 coupons, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, 10,000 um, toilet paper. Yeah, the toilet paper rolls. We tried to go to the store. We went to the store a few days ago. Yeah. I was sort of shocked looking at the you know, like, like, I, I don't, I don't get the toilet paper thing. I just don't get it. I mean, mm-hmm. don't you have a shower that, that, was, has, a hand, that yes. has a hand puzzle? Just jump in the shower. <laughs> I don't get that either. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Why spend all that money, especially if you're home? I mean, if it really got to that, right? I mean, <sighs> and so, Dan, I really liked your example yeah. when you mentioned um, drinking excessively and obviously drinking in moderation. The one that you mentioned in the book. Can you tell us about yeah. that? Yeah. So, I mean, you know. People, people, I think a lot of times think that, um, and now we're talking about moral virtues. So let's let's sort of let's sort of focus on that, right? Because Aristotle does have a view on that. Um, um, I think people often think of moral virtue in in a way that's more consistent with the sort of with sort of the Christian way of thinking about it, and that is that it involves absolutes, right? It involves either always doing something or never doing something, right? Um, we even have a weird like so, so the weird uh, the word temperance, if you take its meaning in sort of like American the context of American English, right? It actually means never drinking, mm-hmm. right? Um, um, which is interesting if you look at the literal meaning of the word, right? Mm-hmm. Um, um, how could it be that, that 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 you know? And that's because I think there's this very deep, deep seated. Um, um, Christianity that's almost a kind of a racial memory um, um, that just sort of look at any I'm not even Christian I'm Jewish and 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 um, um, I, I even noticed it in certain sort of ways I think about things right it's just it's so embedded in our civilization mm-hmm. uh, for good reason um, so but actually if you think about it for every vice of excess, there's also a vice of deficiency and vice versa, right? I mean, I mean, no matter what it is, um, you may have to think of a pretty radical context, right? Mm-hmm. But there are nothing is inherently excessive or deficient or moderate, right? I mean, I mean, and so, you know, the person who drinks, you know, uh, uh, too much is obviously th- th- that's a vice, right? It's a form of gluttony, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also such a thing as drinking too little, right? Um, in, in this, and, and the, we do have names for that vice, 
Um, but they're just not as common, right? So we do sometimes talk about people as being insensible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or boorish. Or right? prudish. Or prudish, exactly. Mm-hmm. And those all get at that sort of sense that there is a kind of a corresponding vice of deficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, and, and, so, and so, you know, I, I gave the example um, of, um, of, uh, of this party I threw for my 50th birthday you know, where I spent, you know, a ridiculous sum of money um, on on food and libations, right, mm-hmm. um, for people. And um, um, I could see, you know, herds of, of all different sort of types of moral, 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 moral outrage types um, criticizing it for being excessive, right? Um, um, you know, how could you spend that kind of money when there's people starving in the world? You know, how could you eat meat? How can you da 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 and all that, right? And what I tried to say was, I said, look, you know, um, if I did this every week, of course that would be apt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If I threw a party like this every week, where we're spending three thousand dollars, you know, a week on booze and food for all my friends, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, th- that would be rightly criticized as excessive. I said, but if I never, ever did anything like this ever, I think I'd be, you know, a freaking bore. Right. I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to be that guy and I wouldn't want to be friends with that guy. Right. Um, and, um, so I thought that was sort of a, a, re- a real illustration, right? There, there are times where even what you would might call normally think of as excessive, if you think of the right frame of reference, it's not excessive at all. Actually, that's what you should do, right? Uh-huh. That's what, that's the kind of person we admire. What a great guy, man. He threw this great party. He paid for all of us. He treated us. You know, I felt like a million bucks. I walked in. Da-da. I mean, I had a custom menu made, right? Um, that's something I think you should be praised for, right? Uh-huh. In the in the right circumstances, right? Right. Once once. Twice in a lifetime, you do something like this, right? Um, um, a fiftieth birthday, or a, 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 you know, a wedding party, or you know, the, these sorts of things. Where what in other contexts would be excessive, in my view, in these contexts, is not only non-excessive but actually admirable, right? Is what you what you would hope people would do, mm-hmm. because it exhibits sort of the appropriate experience. It exhibits the appropriate joie de vie for a healthy person. Mm-hmm. A, more, a mentally healthy person, and also indicates uh, is, is 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 an expression of of love for one's uh, one's friends and, and family, right? Um, and life. Way, yeah, and for life itself, an appreciation for for life itself, and so you know. But I think that a lot of people think of, of virtue as sort of you know you know um, um, constant abstinence and you know bean sprout eating and 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 you know and and um, never having any luxuries and, you know, tiny houses and all this sort of stuff. And I just, I find such people just very strange and not people I really want to spend very much time with um, um, because there's not, you know, I I guess it's not, it's not a surprise to me that, that they're not the sort of people that, that most people tend to want to spend a lot of time with. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, They tend to operate in very tight clicks because most of the rest of the people find them to be tedious and, uninspiring and generally downers and, and or rigid yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah yeah you know um so yeah i, I guess i want to you know three cheers for appropriate excess it seems 
I love that. I love that. <laughs> and so there, there was a question that I had about the chapter, sure. the chapter you had in the book. Um, so uh, you said somewhere in it that you can only really understand or know if a person lived a flourishing life pretty much at the time of their death or pretty much after it. How come, how come that's... Aris, Aristotle says this. Right, how come? And I think Aristotle actually, if you really, if you take the logic of it mm-hmm. seriously, you really can never know. Right. There's always going to be uncertainty. But again, notice that's an epistemic problem, right? Um, um, because look, I can do everything right. Mm-hmm. Things, the, 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 the endeavors I engage in, the, 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 the projects I put in motion can all come to fruition. Mm-hmm. But there could be deep-seated flaws or there could be elements of the situation mm-hmm. or, or characteristics of the people that follow me that destroy all of it. Right. So Aristotle says, you know, we really can't tell whether a person has flourished until after they've lived and we see how everything turned out. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know whether, you know, now we'll go back to what we talked about prior to recording that, that you'll get, but you won't, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know whether, you know, I succeeded, you know, in my fallout new Vegas playthrough mm-hmm. until I see the slideshow at the end. And I, I see how everything turned out for everybody. Right. Um, um I know I tried to help these people, but what actually happened to them, mm-hmm. right. That does sort of matter. And I don't find that out until the end. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in the, in up until then, it's just all promissory notes. Right. And, um, now, I don't think this is the sort of thing that's properly understood in terms of, well, how long after, you know, five years after or 10 years after? It's more the issue that there's always going to be uncertainty as to whether one has flourished. Mm-hmm. And that is paying respect to the element of your flourishing that is not controlled by you. You know, one of the main problems, again, I, I'm sorry to keep bringing this back to Stoicism, but I think it's such a useful contrast. At, Massimo, the Stoics think that sol- that flourishing is self-sufficient. I don't. Mm-hmm. I think that our flourishing is dependent on things that we don't control. Exactly on those preferred indifference that the Stoic carves off. And says, nope, conveniently enough, whether my life was worth living doesn't have anything to do with these things I don't control. Now, to me, that's a little too convenient. Mm-hmm. Right, um, um, and does sound a little bit, yeah. I don't know about that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it matters how things turned out, but you really only know how things turn out in the end, right. and even then, you don't really know. And so, to to never be too certain strikes me as paying healthy respect to the aspect of life that's not in our control. One of the things that the Greeks were very sort of, I think, healthily aware of that today is sort of a point to us is the extent to which um, our successes or failures are in part due to luck. Mm-hmm. Um, today we view that we have such a sort of perverse notion of fairness that um, we refuse to acknowledge the role of luck, the role that luck plays in life. Mm-hmm. or We try to theorize it away or rationalize it away, and I don't think it can. I mean, I mean, there, and I think I think it's important to be respectful of that. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 partly, and partly, if you think about it, being respectful of that is part of what is necessary to maintain a healthy humility. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if you don't think anything's due to luck and everything's under your control, and uh, you know, dichotomy of control, I put all those things out there, and everything else is in here. 
I don't know where your humility comes from then mm-hmm. because all the stuff you don't have control over, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? Mm. Um, it's only if it matters that one then becomes right, rightly humble, right? Um, I'm humbled by the fact that I may fail despite my back best efforts. Right. If I can't fail, I don't understand what, what, what my humility could consist of, right? Yeah. Um, and, and I do think that's important, humility. Yeah, um, and what it means to truly succeed, mm-hmm. right? If if there was no failure, yeah, or perceived failure, right? You right. can't you can't fail to try, right. To hit the target. But then, how much can you really enjoy your success if there are all these other external variables? Oh, I think you enjoy them all the more because you realize that they're that they're that they're fleeting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That they may, you may think you have them, and they may get snatched away. Mm-hmm. Um, um, in my view, actually, the Aristotelian has a healthier appreciation for the preciousness of the good of the of the of the preferred indifference precisely because mm-hmm. they matter right they don't matter right what wow. is the stoics aim for attitude mm-hmm. equanimity right that means it doesn't matter right? mm. i mean definitely not- i don't know how you can have humility and equanimity at the same time i don't get it right yeah i mean that was definitely not my interpretation i don't think that it's not so much that it doesn't matter but it's that it matters less than the person's character so, like I said, yeah. I don't know. I, I but because it's, to me it's kind of slippery. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know whether I'm necessarily disagreeing with it or whether we're just carving up the categories differently. I think so. That's kind of how I interpret it. I think um, you, both of your uh, philosophies make sense. The only place where I see it seems to me a very clear conflict is this issue of, um, was my white life worth living in terms of whether I should be satisfied? Right. And I just do th- have a problem with the idea that I should be satisfied when everything I've tried to do has been a failure. Yeah. I don't. I don't. I don't see why I should be satisfied with that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. It, it, it implies that I wasn't actually trying to succeed. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, um, that, if the, I would say if that's the case, if you weren't done trying to succeed, then yeah, you're right. You would actually be right there. So. So. What, what did you? If you have you ever read Viktor Frankl's *Man's Search for Meaning*? Sure. What did sure. you think? Listen, I've read a lot. I've read a lot of that literature, right? I right. mean, but you know, I th- I think it's worth f- reflecting upon the frame of reference in which that literature is produced, right? Prima Levi, Survival in Auschwitz. I mean, all these things. These these are these are in a sense musings, contemplations right, that come out of lives lived in extremis, right? Right. right? Now, I think that it's important to have a body of thought. That applies to life in extremis. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that a philosophy of life Mm -hmm. should be shaped by a philosophy aimed at life in extremis because for us and most of us in the developed world, life is not an extremis. And even in the places where it is, Mm -hmm. the aim is to get out of the life in extremis, right? Right. You know, I mean, mean, part part of the point I always make is like, you know, all these people in, in developing countries about whom we have rightfully have tremendous ethical concern, their aim isn't to remain perfect, permanent object of ethical concern. Their aim is to no longer be objects of ethical concern, right? right? Is to, in a sense, get to, in other words, the preferred indifference are the reason for doing the whole damn thing, right? I mean, I mean yes, if, if you can't have them, if you're living in extremis, if you're living in the middle of Darfur or a civil war or whatever, yeah. okay, we hunker down and we console ourselves. Yes, you know, ultimately what counts is that I'm a good person and da 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 But isn't the aim ultimately to not be in that situation? Yeah. And, is right? your, and is your fear that stoicism leads to complacency? 
my my fear is that stoicism, if taken as a philosophy of life mm-hmm. rather than as a discipline for consolation and productive resignation, right. doesn't have any way to explain why it is that our main aim would be to to cease being right mm-hmm. <laughs> in in that position. Right? I mean, I mean, the whole reason. Why we why we're worried about you know why we care about and want to do things for poor people is so that they'll eventually become unpoor, right? right. How can that be a preferred indifferent? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and what is, what is productive resignation? Um, when you are defeated, right? To be able to experience the tragic without it becoming um, paralyzing. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Without it undermining the capacity to overcome the tragic mm-hmm. right yeah and that's where i think stoicism is really valuable because i think done properly articulated what it's basically telling you is is to exercise to put things in a kind of proportion right mm-hmm. um um and and to live to fight another day and all that but if at the end of the day that is not the aim right. then i don't understand the point of it right. Right. Um, um um so um yeah i mean to my mind not only are they preferred indifference, not indifference, they're the point of the whole damn thing. Um, they're why everybody's trying so hard not to be poor, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. They're not trying hard not to be poor so that they can have wonderful character. <laughs> they're trying hard not to be poor so that they can enjoy the preferred indifference. Now, that doesn't sound to me like it's indifferent. <laughs> yeah. Right? Um, um, and, and if you ask me, why do I actually give a shit about anybody having good character? Mm-hmm. You know, it's worth asking. Why is it so valuable to have good character? Now, in Christianity, I understand the answer because that's the that's the that's the source of your salvation, right? right. Mm-hmm. But if you take that narrative out of it, right. what reason do, is there to give a shit about good character other than that people behave well enough so that I can get on with my pre- pursuing my pre- my preferred indifference? Right. Well, I'm assuming the Stoics would say because it's the end in itself that it's a way for you to sort, or maybe a means to an end if it's a way. But that's for you the to... stip- that's the stipulative. I mean, that yeah. doesn't tell. I mean, it's, and I don't know that I think it's really true to people's experience, right? Yeah. Um, 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 again, you know, go talk to people in Darfur and ask them what they're trying to get, and their answer is not going to be good character, right? Yeah, their answer is going to be food, a uh, day without people shooting at me, right. and or trying to enslave my children or whatever, right? It's not going to be, you know, virtue. Right. Um, um, and I don't, th- I don't think that's indifferent. I think that's the whole point. Yeah. Um, right. So I, I would subordinate virtue. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say virtue is, 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 is a means. Yeah. Not the end. Massimo thinks it's the end. Mm-hmm. I understand the view. Right. I just can't share it, and and I just see too much that seems to contradict it around me. Um, so yeah. Well, I mean, in my conception, I think that both philosophies work hand in hand really well, and I obviously I agree with you, and I agree with the Stoic view as well. And so Dan, I mean, the show was super insightful, man. Thank you so so much for coming on. Well, it was a pleasure, and um, you guys do a nice a nice uh, a nice job of it. You're very uh, very amenable, and. Um, um, if you ever want to talk to me about anything else, I'm always available. And uh, yeah, it was great. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if we wanted to follow your work, uh, where where could we find it? So um, I don't know if you publish links with your. Um, yeah, so we I, will. so yeah. I publish, I edit and publish a magazine online called The Electric Agora. Mm-hmm. We have a stable of writers. I'm also one of the writers, um, and also we do take we do do publish some one offs. Um, that the people send things to me. Um, and I would say it's a broad collection of things in philosophy, um, um, popular culture, politics. Um, the most recent essay we just published was actually an essay from one of our regulars about 
uh, the 1960s Batman mm-hmm. um, from a semiotic point of view, signs and symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so really eclectic. So they can follow my work there. I also um, host the um, Sophia program on Meaning of Life TV, which is a sister site of bloggingheads.tv, mm-hmm. which is a major public affairs website run by Robert Wright, um, who is a multiple New York Times bestselling author, yeah. former editor at the Atlantic Monthly, New Republic. He's part of that um, that New Republic gang that goes back to like the 80s, um, Big Mickey Kaus, Robert Wright, and a bunch of others. Oh, wow. um, um, R- Robert Wright? Uh, right. Uh, right. Okay. W R I G H T. He's written books that you guys are right up your alley. I don't know if he, he just wrote a he published a book a few years ago called Why Buddhism is True. Uh-huh. Um, um he had a thing he has a thing about he has a book called The Evolution of God. Mm-hmm. Um he's in, he's right in your sweet spot of stuff you're interested in. Oh cool. So I would I would I would I would see if he wants to talk. He always wants to talk about these sorts of things. He created the meaning of life.tv channel as an offshoot to blogging heads because he was as interested in those sorts of things as he was in the public affairs stuff that he was already doing. So I have, I have a show there that Massimo actually and I developed together. Uh And for a while it was just us doing dialogues, Uh but then eventually Massimo got really busy. He became more of a public intellectual on his own, right? He started doing the social stuff. So it sort of became my show. He now appears less frequently. And I have a lot of other people that I talk to. Um, so people can also follow my work there too. And I'll give you links to, I'll set email you links to all of this. So, and where can we find you on social media? Um, the electric Agora has a Twitter feed, Mm -hmm in which I often intemperately um, hold forth, um, which I will uh, um, send to you. Okay, cool. And um, uh, I don't, I, we also have, a, Electric Agora has a Facebook page, but I only use it to announce new new essays. I don't, um, I don't really uh, engage on it myself. Mm-hmm. So if people want to engage in me in the social universe sphere, um, um, it would be Twitter. Okay. Um, the 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 virtues of which I'm still not sure of. I mean, you know, there are times where I hate myself for even participating in it, and then there's other times where I think, okay, this is I can see why this is important to do. Yeah, um, understandably. Yeah, I vacillate back and forth. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks again, man. This was such Thank an insightful so show. Appreciate it. All right, Dan. Take care, man. Thank you. Be healthy. <laughs> all right guys wow that was an awesome yeah awesome episode. yeah that was really fun yeah oh, man. so if you want to follow us follow us at seize the moment podcast on facebook and instagram mm-hmm. and at seize underscore podcast on twitter uh like subscribe hit the bell, hit the bell. and you can also find us at the o4l online network under the show section and seize the or on seize the moment podcast and see you guys next week for episode 45 be healthy